This is a conspiracy channel. Welcome to the Hush Channel. Mystical healing waters of what is today called Eureka Springs lies in northwest Arkansas's Carroll County nearest border to Missouri long before the arrival of Europeans. The indigenous, particularly the Osage, Bands of Delaware, and Shawnee dwelled in the area and recognized the healing properties of the area's natural springs. However, the story told first will be from Cora Pankley Call, as this is a channel that leans towards unpopular history, buried history, and silenced history. Just a little backstory on Mrs. Pankley Call. Cora was the baby of 10 children and was born just nine miles southeast of Eureka Springs. Her mother's people were the Harps and the Vaughns. They were the first to drive an overland wagon from Tennessee to the Ozark Mountains, which widened the Indian and Buffalo Trail. They settled in what is now Washington County near Evansville in Indiana prior to 1825. Cora's great-grandmother, named Molly Vaughn Stone, was half Cherokee, and in Cora's writings, she will be mentioning a William Vaughn and his wife, Farabee. Per my research into their family tree, Farabee's tribal name is Farabee Luna, whose name is spelled Farabee, F-A-I-R-A-B-E-E, in Cora's writing, but it is also interchangeable as Farabee, F-E-R-E-B-Y, Vaughn, with her former surname being Benton. Farabee is Cora's mother's mom. So this is Cora's maternal grandmother. In the notes of the family tree, it states that Farabee is a Cherokee princess. Farabee's father was European. Her mom was Cherokee and had the surname of Looney, which is why Farabee's tribal name is Farabee Luna, derived from her matrilineal surname of Looney. And as we know, the Cherokee are a matriarchal people, meaning surnames are passed down from the mother. This is mentioned in reference to Farabee's grandson, who is Cora's first cousin named George W. Vaughn, as a part of his claim to Cherokee blood in order to gain access to Cherokee land. Now the story about to be told is about the origin of Eureka Springs by Cora who became the founder and the president of the Ozark Writers Artists Guild. This piece was written in the Arkansas Historical Quarterly Volume 5 number 3 in the autumn of 1946 where Cora writes the following. Very early in the 18th century came the first trailblazers to the Arkansas's Ozarks. It was inhabited only by wild animals and Osage Indians. It was a land where heavily forested hills, barely falling short of mountains, reached upward walling the huge bowl-shaped or sometimes narrow valleys into miniature worlds of their own. Here, cold, sparkling streams filled with fish found their way through the valleys to join the great father of waters. Beside his wife, Farabee's fires, my adventurous kinsman, William Vaughn, Welch adventurer, Indian trader, and packman, first heard of this enchanted land and of the magic healing spring which, according to the Indian description traced with a stick in the sand, burst from a huge rock about halfway up a steep mountain. Though the Osage Indians were hostile to the Cherokees, they allowed all tribes to bring their sick here. They were afraid that if they fought over the magic spring, the great spirit might be offended and dry up the water. All tribes were permitted to come. Not only from the Indians did William Vaughn hear of the enchanted land where the Indians carved bows and arrows of Bois d'Arc, but also from trappers and huntsmen who described it as a land flowing with milk and honey, a hunter's paradise. The feet of William Vaughn, which had carried him down the old Virginia warrior's trace into the wilds of old Kentucky and Tennessee, now itched for the trail leading to the healing spring. He and his son-in-law, Philip Harp, a long hunter from Kentucky, heard the story from the Cherokees, which tallied with that of the Osages, that the father of Black Dog had laboriously chiseled out the basin, about the size of a large washtub in the limestone cliff. It was for many years jealously guarded from the white man by the Indian, who held the place sacred to the red man. Indian tradition has it that De Soto and Ponce de Leon visited the site, which is now Eureka Springs, but were driven away by the Osages. Aside from tradition, there is mute testimony that DeSoto did visit Eureka Springs in northwest Arkansas. Stone cuttings, tools, coins, and old forts in Washington County all attest to that fact. The Indians of the North knew of the spring. This information was recorded by Jean-Baptiste, 
whose mother was the daughter of a Sioux chief who told the following story to Colonel Gilbert Knapp while on an exploring expedition to the copper region of Lake Superior. Baptiste's father, Louis Baptiste, agent for the Hudson Bay Company, traveled with sledge trains to buy furs and pelts of the Sioux. While on one of these trips, he met and fell in love with the chief's daughter, whom he induced, after the consent of the chief, to marry him. Among many other tribal stories related to him by his mother was one of the magic Indian healing spring. It was before his mother's day that more Inaki, the beautiful flower, daughter of the greatest of all Seuss chiefs lived and received the homage of her father's tribe. She was good as well as beautiful. It seems that along, and sever winter came. More I, Naki, was ill. Provisions gave out. It was believed that the Sioux had found disfavor with the Great Spirit. Councils were held and it was decided to go south to the healing spring. The march led them along many great streams until they finally arrived at the land of friendly Osage who, after the chiefs of the two tribes exchanged greetings, made them welcome and gave them the best they had. After a stay of some weeks with the Osage, the Sioux again started south in quest of the healing spring. The beautiful flower was no better, so after many days they came in sight of the earthen lodges of the Kansias tribe. They too proved friendly to the half-starved Sioux. Here they tarried long enough to hunt buffalo on the plains. Then medicine men came to see the sick maiden, but their enchantments and incantations had no effect upon the stricken daughter of the Sioux chief. They then were told that they were but two days' journey from the wonderful healing spring, where the water burst from a mountainside and flowed into a basin, with water so magical that none who drank or bathed left without being healed. Hope was again revived, and the beautiful girl was carried by willing hands. They followed the well-worn trail and found the spring exactly as described. They carried water from the little basin and bathed the Indian girl who was now blind. They bathed her eyes and put clay packs on them, and in a little while, to their great joy, Little Flower was able to see. There was great rejoicing among the Sioux, who remained until the cruel winter was past. Then they returned to their hunting grounds. So much for the Indian legends and traditions which so charmed and challenged William Vaughn and his son-in-law, Philip Harp, that they pushed further across the mountains of Tennessee into the Arkansas Ozarks. They entered what is now Washington County, Arkansas, and found it to be a wide, rich, and fertile farming land, but it was in the more rugged area of what is now Madison, Carroll, Boone, and Newton counties that they found the true land of blue skies and laughing waters, the hunter's paradise. The hills with their caves and dens, streams of water and lush vegetation, were alive with bears, deer, wolves, and panthers, to say nothing of the lesser game and wildfowl and fish which abounded then. They had no trouble in finding the old healing spring as they followed the well-defined Indian trace. There they made camp, hunted and associated with the Indians. Though there were no permanent Indian residents then in the vicinity of the spring, there were camps along Kings and Osage rivers. The territory around the spring was too sacred to be desecrated by camps. The Osage held the territory until 1825, when they traded it to the Cherokees, who in 1828 relinquished it to the whites for territory in what is now Oklahoma. It was an enchanted spot which the shrewd Welch trader saw in terms of gold, but which his romantic Irish son-in-law saw as ideal for a home. With the romance and beauty embedded in their hearts and minds, they returned to Tennessee to add embellishment to the tales of William's wife's tribe. Like other white men, William Vaughn saw that the things they were doing would mean the handwriting on the wall for the Indians. Even then, treaties were being negotiated for the rich Indian lands in Tennessee. Like Moses, he had seen the promised land, the Ozarks. But neither he nor his wife, Farabee, were permitted to enter, for they both died and were buried in Tennessee. But the tales told to their children finally resulted in their leaving their rich holdings in Tennessee, taking only what they could haul in their wagons, and with their flocks, herds, Negroes, gold, and families, including the harps, setting out for the land of blue skies and laughing waters. They widened the Indian and Buffalo trails and drove the first overland wagon into what is now Northwest Arkansas, sometime prior to 1825. The agricultural-minded Vaughn settled in Washington County, while the hunting harps pushed on into Carroll, 
near the old Indian healing springs where their descendants live today. Fame of the Ozarks had spread, and many white settlers who had floated down the Ohio were just waiting at Little Rock for the treaty to be made with the Indians. But the Vaughns and Harps, who had Cherokee wives, builded log houses and blazed the trail for the legal settlers who came when the treaty was made with the Cherokees in 1828. The old healing spring became a hunter's rendezvous. They camped beneath the old rock house and met with other hunters and a few adventurous pioneers. Here a few years later came John Gaskins, noted bear hunter, who settled on Leatherwood a few miles north. Then came old Dr. Alva Jackson, who was later to herald the story of the old Indian healing spring to the world. Here they hunted, camped, told yarns, and sang to drown out the cry of the wolves and panthers as they assembled for the night's marauding. It was a hunter's paradise, and many hair-raising episodes of bear and deer hunting that almost ended in tragedy for the hunter were told around the campfires that glowed there. One day, while Dr. Jackson was trying to dig a varmint out, which his dogs had treed beneath a bluff above the spring, his son Bill, who suffered from granulated eyelid, got dirt in his eyes and began to cry. The doctor told him to go to the spring and bathe his eyes, which he did. It helped them so much, the doctor had him bathe them continuously for several days. His eyes were soon well. Dr. Jackson began carrying the water out in jugs and bottles and selling it as an eye water, even up into Missouri. By the time the Civil War broke out, Dr. Jackson's eye water and the old Indian Spring were pretty well known locally. During the Civil War, when that part of the country was alternately in the hands of the Federals and the Confederates, the many caves and dens in the rocks of the mountains offered security for the forces when refugee was desirable. Here also, many of the wounded of Pea Ridge, who heard of the famed spring and old Dr. Jackson, came to be treated. With cedar and pine boughs and leaves for beds, the old doctor nursed these men, bathing them in the water and using herbs, barks, and berries native to the hills, which remedies had been made known by the Indians. Thus, with the water of the old Indian spring and native herbs, Dr. Jackson nursed these men back to health. The old doctor was frequently called upon by the sick and wounded of both armies, among whom was Major J.W. Cooper of Cooper's Battalion, Cherokee Brigade, Confederate Army. This officer contracted rheumatism and chronic malarial poison while campaigning in the Southwest. Having obtained leave of absence, he came to Dr. Jackson in February I-865, as this section was then occupied by the Federals, it was necessary to take refuge in the mountain fastnesses. A party consisting of the Doctor, the Major, William Nichols, Sign Greeley, and two others took refuge in the Rock House near the site where the old Southern Hotel later was built. Here they lived in archaic simplicity, and in a few months the soldiers had completely recovered. Not until several years later were the curative powers of the Little Spring heralded to the world bringing 5,000 people to Eureka Springs in one year. Dr. Alva Jackson went to church at Berryville on Sunday in May 1879 and was invited home with Judge L.B. Saunders, famed Texas cattleman, hunter, and Indian trader. The entire family, both men and women, were excellent marksmen, and son Burton was later to become the champion pistol shot of the world. Judge Saunders had come to Arkansas in search of healing for a chronic sore on his leg, which doctors everywhere pronounced incurable. It was his custom to spend several weeks each year with his son, C. Burton, better known as Buck, because he killed so many buck deer, in hunting. Their spring wagon was now packed ready for an early start in the morning. Come with us, doctor. No, I can't. Why don't you come with me instead and try the old Indian healing spring? There's good hunting around there, and I believe that water will cure your leg. I don't know, Doc. A lot of mighty good doctors have failed to do that. I'm beginning to be afraid it's hopeless. Why not try it anyway? It cured my boy's eyes. I've seen it do some marvelous things. Well, if it did anything for this, I'd herald it around the world. He scratched his head. I just believe I'll take you up on that and try it. I'll see what Bert says. The lad was excited at the prospects. Early the next morning, they followed the county road across Kings River where, according to prearranged plans, they picked up Dr. Jackson. The county road played out where the Oddfellow Cemetery is now 
and they loaded their belongings onto their horses and rode onto the spring, which was located about halfway up a steep hill, completely walled in by mountains. It was a wild, beautiful spot, from which deer could be seen grazing on the opposite hillside. The father and son were both enthusiastic. After a few days, the judge said, I believe I'll stay, for I am sure my leg is healing. It is much better than it was. I am going to try bathing it a little longer, and I believe it will get well. Go tell your mother. Buck saddled his horse and rode home. His mother was so delighted with his report, she decided to come too. He hitched his horse to a buggy and brought her to camp on May 18, 1879, her birthday. When she saw the rude tent, she said, Well, if we are going to stay here, we ought to have a little better camp. Buck, then a lad of 16, picked up his axe and taking the horses, went to where they had left their hack. He hitched up and cut a sort of road to camp. When he came to East Mountain, where Whispering Pines is now, he cut a small tree and tied it to the back of his hack and roped the two wheels on either side together, and with them securely locked, slid down the steep mountain and made it into camp, the first vehicle of any kind to be driven in. He then took his team, double tree and chains, and snaked up enough slabs and rough lumber from Massman's Mill, five miles below camp, to make a shack about Ioxio, and covered it with slabs. Here they camped and hunted for two months, during which time Judge Saunders' limbs was entirely healed. Judge Saunders was well known all over Carroll County, and when his cure was noised abroad, people began to come. The second family to arrive was Squire John Whitson's of Berryville, who were great friends of Saunders. On the 4th of July in 1879, there were 20 families camped here. Dr. Jackson had ridden over for more water and to visit with Saunders. Judge Saunders said, Doctor, people are beginning to come here, and the first thing you know, there will be a town, so we had better name it. Dr. Jackson said, We will call it Saunders Springs. No, we will call it Jackson Springs. Judge Saunders said, but neither could agree. Burton, who was listening and who only a few days before had been reading of Ponce de Leon and his hunt for the Fountain of Youth, said, Let's call it Eureka, meaning I have found it. And thus Eureka Springs was named. From the combined directory of Little Rock, Hot Springs, Pine Bluff, Eureka Springs, and Fort Smith, first five cities of the state, published in 1881 by Doherty and Sarchet, we are enabled to give the readers a brief outline of Eureka Springs. Of Eureka Springs during the past year, much has been said for and against its claims as the great healing fountain, the Siloam of the Afflicted. Having, including this now rapidly growing city in our directory, it becomes us to give it the prominence it deserves as a great watering place. The spasmodic growth of this place during the past year has no parallel in the history of watering places as the mission of this book is to give plain statement of facts. It is not our intention to go into an elaborate nor exaggerated description of the so-called magic city, like the average historian, whose number are legion, and whose ambition appears to be the panorama description of the place, disregarding any and all disadvantages or disagreeable facts pertaining to the city of healing waters. Eureka Springs is situated in the White River Mountains in Carroll County, Arkansas. It is over 1,700 feet above the level of the sea, the climate is claimed to be mild in winter and delightfully pleasant in summer. The nights during the summer months are similar to those enjoyed by residents of the Golden State. This place as yet can hardly claim the name of a city. It is in fact more properly a Greek camp although in a few years hence, should the tide of its population continue on with the flood now pouring into it, it will soon be far above its rivals, not only as a watering place but as a great city. The location of Eureka is picturesque in the extreme, being scattered over the mountaintops, clinging to the mountainsides, and nestling in the great gorges that extend in various directions in the widespread corporate limits of the city. The buildings are, as yet, of little or no consequence as models of architecture, the greater number being rudely constructed of pine lumber with more view to a hasty occupancy than convenience and stability. The cost of living is as reasonable here as in any city east or south. First-class hotels are not numerous. Boarding house are numerous and differ muchly as to their accommodations. The visitor can be suited according to his or her means as to cost of living. The streets are very narrow, precipitous, and serpentine. 
There are in the immediate vicinity some 50 springs, all containing more or less medicinal properties. There are seven principal springs, which have become noted for their health-giving qualities, namely Little Eureka, Basin, Harding, Johnson, Arsenic, Oil, Crescent, Sulfur, and Iron Springs. The above-named springs have gained a worldwide notoriety for the marvelous cures of the various blood and skin diseases, also for a number of miraculous cases of restoring sight to the blind and completely curing nearly all cases of sore eyes. The question will be asked by all who hear of these wonderful springs. What diseases will they cure? The following diseases have been known to be benefited and in many cases radical cures affected when given proper time and attention. Rheumatism, cancer, sore eyes, dyspepsia, kidney diseases, liver complaints, scrofula, catarrh, paralysis, ulcers, asthma, piles, and other diseases peculiar to an impure condition of the blood. Bright's disease has been entirely cured by use of the waters. Life at the springs, says a writer in 188i, is to a great extent mostly primitive. The furniture is of the rudest, the accommodations few, and the inconveniences many. The cooking, much of it, is done out of doors in the old-fashioned skillet and bake oven. Many wealthy families prefer tent life, and the site is peculiarly favorable for the experiment. The loan of a drinking cup at the spring, or a firebrand at the camp, often leads to lasting friendships. There is little conformity to fashion, though many stylishly dressed people throng the streets. You speak to everybody you meet, whether you know them or not, and are sure of a courteous, cordial return. The preliminary steps at meeting are the questions as to whence you came, when you arrived, how long you will stay, your malady, and your name. To some, this wholesale prying into your affairs may seem impertinent, but to the lonely camper miles and miles away from home, sick and longing for sympathy, it is pleasant. The town was thus described, Everywhere that a human abode could be constructed, houses of every description, tents and shelters sprang up all over the mountaintops, hanging by corners on the steep sides, perched upon jutting boulders, spanning the gulches or nestling under crags and grottoes. It is a most peculiar-looking place, presenting an apparent disregard to anything like order and regularity of arrangements, with its two-story streets, its winding thoroughfares and circular paths. Eureka Springs is known far and wide as the Little Switzerland of America. Millions of people have drunk from the life-giving water, which still flows on to bless the generations that shall come when we have followed the Indians and the pioneers to their last great hunting ground. Although the Osage indigenous were hostile to the Cherokee, they allowed all tribes to bring their sick there as they were afraid that if they fought over the mystical springs, the great spirit might be offended and dry up the water. Thus, all tribes were welcome. Back in 1856, a white settler named Alva Jackson gathered seed information from the local indigenous and was able to cure his son's eye ailment from the waters of one of the area's major springs, Basin Spring. Jackson would soon become known as Dr. Alva Jackson when he decided to establish a hospital in a local cave near Basin Spring where he would use the water's healing properties to treat patients from both the Union and the Confederacy during the Civil War. After the war, he bottled and marketed the water after his own name, Dr. Jackson's Eye Water. In 1872, former Republican Reconstruction era Governor of Arkansas, Powell Clayton, began marketing the springs and its commercial interests as a retirement community for the wealthy. However, the springs were still local knowledge until 1879, when Jackson's friend, Judge J.B. Saunders, was cured of a crippling disease by the waters, and Saunders began promoting the springs far and wide. So much so that word of mouth caused the area to turn into an actual boom town. Within just one year, the area went from being a rural spa village to a flourishing major city, spa, and tourist destination that was also incorporated officially as a city with holding over 10,000 occupants. Of course, by this time, the indigenous of whom these lands were home to had been done away with. With such, the springs were renamed, being called the Magic City, Little Switzerland of the Ozarks. Because of its mountainous terrain and winding up and down paths of its streets and walkways. But Eureka, meaning we found it, stuck. The construction of grand bathhouses and elegant hotels capitalized on the town's natural springs, and people flooded to the area. 
packing it, so much so that there are those who resorted to camping out in tents and shanties. In 1882, Powell Clayton formed the Eureka Springs Improvement Company to attract a railroad to the city. And after its completion, as well as the installation of water and sewer lines, Eureka became a more accessible destination and then known as a vacation resort. In just two years, thousands of homes and commercial enterprises were constructed. Amongst these grand establishments was 1886's completion of 75 Prospect Avenue's Crescent Hotel, a resort for the rich and the famous, and ultimately, America's most haunted hotel. Perched on a hill with a commanding view of Eureka Springs, the Crescent Hotel stands as an impressive structure crafted from locally quarried limestone. Its construction, initiated in 1884 by the Eureka Springs Improvement Company, initially aimed to create a luxurious resort for affluent guests. For around 15 years, the company managed the hotel, but dwindling business during non-peak seasons led to a shift in purpose. In 1908, the hotel transitioned into the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women, catering to academic pursuits. Despite the college's closure during the Great Depression in 1934, the hotel continued its summer operations. But later, in 1937, this hotel took a very dark turn. Amongst all the ghouls and the goblins that trail this world, I think sometimes we forget that the scariest thing is us humans. Baker was an early American radio broadcaster, entrepreneur, and inventor, born on November 27th of 1882 to a wealthy family in the small Mississippian River town of Muscatine, Iowa. His father, John Baker, had reportedly patented 126 inventions, while his mother, Frances Mary, was a writer before her marriage to John. Like his father, Norman was also inventive. He began his career as a vaudeville performer. Vaudeville is a theatrical genre of variety entertainment which began in France at the end of the 19th century. It was originally a comedy without psychological or moral intent. Based on a comical situation with a dramatic composition or light poetry interspersed with songs or ballads, this form of theater had became popular in the United States and Canada from the early 1880s to the 1930s, while changing over time. Norman would invent and through his Tangley company successfully manufacture then sell what was called the Tangley Automatic Air Calliope, or simply the Calliope which was a variation of the then common steam organ, a musical instrument that produces sound by sending steam through large whistles, typically a very large musical instrument. His invention in turn was in high demand for fairgrounds and circuses alike. Norman began forming numerous local businesses under the Tangley or Baker name, and by 1904, Baker became intrigued by traveling shows presenting mentalists and other vaudeville performers to the public. Mentalism, in and of itself, is a performing art in which its practitioners, known as mentalists, appear to demonstrate highly developed mental or intuitive abilities. Performances may appear to include hypnosis, telepathy, clairvoyance, divination, precognition, psychokinesis, mediumship, mind control, memory feats, deduction, and rapid mathematics. This peak of interest initiated Baker's creation of his very own troupe known as Charles Welch, which would travel the country. He himself performed in this troupe as the mind reader, Pearl Tangley. At 42 years old, in 1924, he took an interest in the rising field of radio broadcasting and asked his hometown of Muscatine, Iowa to permit a station that would make the town famous across the Midwest. The station, KTNT, No, The Naked Truth, was up and running by the following year making its debut on Thanksgiving Day of 1925, using a phone for a sign-on signal and Baker's veteran carnival performance skills to use as an exquisite promoter and announcer. Almost immediately, Immediately, Baker began aggressively speaking out against an alleged cartel of broadcasters who were against independent stations such as his own. In particular, Baker rallied against AT&T, who at the time, through Western Electric, had a direct monopoly on radio station transmitters. This was during the times 
before the broadcast spectrum was heavily regulated. The same year of 1925, Baker became president of the American Broadcasters Association against such monopolists. The association was short-lived and ended only two years afterwards in 1927. However, the following year, in 1928, KTNT began broadcasting at 10,000 watts, which meant that it could now reach over 1 million homes. His show became so popular that thousands of people would congregate outside the radio station just to hear his broadcast. Throughout Norman's career as a radio broadcaster, he would be involved in continuous litigations of many varieties, often lawsuits against his critics, rather they were real or imagined. These lawsuits deterred opponents and ensured him a high media profile, and he continued to use his station to launch blistering attacks on innumerable commercial, media, and political groups both locally and nationwide. He would go on to also launch various tangly stores, a drawing school, and a tabloid magazine called TNT in 1929. As he later became the president of the Progressive Publishing Company as well as the publisher of the Daily Midwest Free Press, forming a career that was the crux of his inherited skills from his inventor father John and the literary sphere of his mother Frances Mary. Baker's publications were indeed formed to undercut newspapers who Baker wholeheartedly believed were a part of the cartel that was out to get him. While this was nothing new, by this time for KTNT, it did begin to dissuade his listenership and actually did more damage to Baker's own reputation than those he attacked. Outside of his broadcast adventure, Norman also operated a traveling campaign bus equipped with a Calliope, and he was in demand as a speaker for populist causes in the region. For example, he'd announced mandated cattle TB tests, water fluoridation, vaccinations, and also aluminum cookware of which he claimed caused half of all cancers. It was also in 1929 when Baker heard of Dr. Charles Ozias, who had supposedly discovered a cure for cancer. Norman called for five volunteers with cancer to be sent to Dr. Ozias for treatment at his own expense. The first test patient died in November of 1929. Despite this, Norman Baker's TNT Magazine's December publication showed him and two of his associates on the front page under the headline, Cancer is Cured. That same month, a second patient died. A third and fourth would follow in the following months of January and February of 1930. However, Baker still went on to reprint the December issue of TNT in March of 1930, describing the miraculous recovery of all five volunteers. A blatant lie. Just a few months later, in May of 1930, the fifth and the last patient would die. But still, Baker would again reprint the December issue of the TNT magazine restating that cancer was cured. Despite the fact that Norman was not trained in the medical field, he was now convinced that using aluminum-based products such as utensils caused cancer and that cancer could not be cured by operation, radium, or x-ray. He dismissively referred to surgeons as educated fools and cutters incapable of helping patients, stating that MD, medical doctor, actually stood for more dough, as in extortion. Norman claimed that he truly obtained the cure to cancer in the form of an injectable formula from Dr. Ozias in January of 1930. This concoction actually consisted of alcohol, glycerin, carbolic acid, tea, viewed from watermelon seeds, round corn silk, and clover leaves. By April of 1930, Baker was allied with a convicted medical swindler by the name of Harry Hoxie. Hoxie was already a nationally known quack who traveled from state to state escaping authorities. Baker had brought Hoxie to Muscatine, Iowa to aid in the promotion of his newfound very expensive cure to cancer alongside other ailments and had been granted permission to open the Baker Institute in Muscatine while advertising the clinic on air. A month afterwards in May, Baker conducted a huge exhibition with live open air cutting of patients drawing in 40 to 50,000 people who were urged to buy various Baker or Tang products as he proceeded to quell any doubts about the validity of his cure to cancer. The thing about Norman G. Baker was that he was considered to be the greatest showman of his day and so he was assumed to be brilliant but he was also a very handsome man described as having wavy black hair and hypnotic eyes. A dangerous man always having one or more submachine guns within his reach. This feared well for him and was a part of his mass appeal. He was known for wearing white suits, purple shirts, shirts, lavender ties that suited his orchid-colored car. So before the masses, Baker seemed to be a man with a plan, a man of action, of utter brilliance, who was no nonsense. But it was all a facade. 
During his exhibition before tens of thousands of people, Baker drank a large quantity of the formula to prove that it was harmless, followed by surgery on a man named Mandis Johnson, who allegedly had a brain tumor. While Johnson was still conscious, the formula was applied, and afterwards, Baker told the crowd, cancer is cured. The Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published an editorial accusing Baker of being a quack doctor. Baker retorted by denouncing the American Medical Association, AMA, as the Amateur Meat Cutters Association. Morris Fishbane of the AMA was a physician and JAMA editor. He called Baker out for Baker's claims that the AMA actually offered him $1 million for his cure to cancer with the intent of forcing it from the market so that patients might be compelled to resort to surgery. Things got very nasty very quickly when Baker attacked Fishbein for being Jewish and then proceeded to sue JAMA for libel and defamation. Baker then reported that three men attacked and fired at his hospital. However, police found zero evidence outside of the evidence that Harry Hoxie, Baker's medical smuggling accomplice, had fired all the shots. That that May of 1930, the state of Iowa filed an injunction against Baker, Hoxie, and three others for practicing medicine without a license. The trial held in September of that same year would garner nationwide attention. At the same time, Baker was called before the Federal Radio Commission in Washington, D.C. to defend KTNT's license. In the midst of all the litigation, Baker and Hoxie began turning on each other over the division of the profits from the hospital and filed several lawsuits against each other. Reportedly, the Baker Institute and Muscat team was bringing in as much as $100,000 a month spirited away in suitcase under the cover of night but most of this money went to Baker. In 1931 the Iowa Supreme Court sustained the injunction against Baker and his practice and the FRC issued a damning report about KTNT and the station was delicensed in June of 1931. An arrest warrant was then issued for Baker's arrest. However Norman G. Baker was well on his way to Mexico by then to flee punishment. And then the cycle restarted. He set up shop and set up a radio station called XENT Zent in Nuevo Laredo on the Rio Grande just on the border of the U.S. and Mexico. The station was called a border blaster and operated nightly existing outside of the United States FCC jurisdiction. Zent became the most or second most powerful station in all of North America. The premise of establishing Zent for Baker was to promote his alleged cure to cancer. It provided low-brow entertainment with hillbilly style music mixed in with Baker's numerous attacks which included anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic rants and a sprinkle of live broadcasts of Baker actually having sex with his mistresses. In Mexico, Baker was able to set up yet another cancer treatment facility. This time, however, it was relatively smaller. After six years in exile, he then returned to Muscatine, Iowa in 1937 where he served one day for practicing medicine without a license and paid a $50 contempt of the court fine that was appealed unsuccessfully to the United States Supreme Court. But it does not stop there. He then proceeded to run for governor of Iowa on the farmer labor ticket in 1932 at 50 years old. While he only received a few hundred votes, the campaign garnered him the platform and spotlight to give him a voice for his rants against local powerheads as he also crusaded against local newspapers and radio stations that reported negatively about his activity. Following the think pieces of prairie populism that the common people were being exploited by monopolistic conspiracies in various guises. In spring of 1936, Baker would once again run, but this time for senator and under the Republican ticket. He would receive a few thousand votes, but he would not win. At 50 years old, in 1932, Norman would organize a short-lived United Farm Federation of America and appoint himself a permanent honorary member and chairman, and thus drawing himself a salary, which caused yet another lawsuit. A hagiography is a biography of a saint or an ecclesiastical leader, as well as, by extension, an adult and idealized biography of a preacher, priest, founder, saint, monk, nun, or icon in any of the world's religions. In 1934, Baker had a hagiography entitled Doctors, Dynamiters, and Gunmen, written about himself by Alvin Winston, citing it as the most important book ever written. Norman Baker would go on to publish two other books about himself and his crusade for humanity by the end of his life. By the time Baker had made his way to Eureka Springs, Arkansas, he was 55 years old and the city was down on its luck. However, there were two things that pushed Norman forward. 
one, his reputation was completely depleted in his hometown of Muscatine, Iowa. And two, Eureka Springs was the place of mystical cures with his magical healing waters. It was the perfect place to restart, especially given his occupation. He found a nice place to once again set up shop, the Victorian and neoclassical architect Crescent Hotel, which in its prime had been a haven for the wealthy but had fallen into despair due to the Great Depression. He converted the hotel into a hospital, decorating it in semblance of the variations of purple of which was his trademark attire. It was opened and ready to service the public by November of 1937. He treated thousands of desperate patients with his injections, accumulating thousands of dollars of which was kept in various safe deposits, known only to him and his new accomplice, Thelma Yount. Postal inspectors claim Baker's Hospital cleared out about $500,000 in one year. Patients who arrived to Baker's Hospital were promised that if their cancer was not cured within three to six weeks, they could return for more treatment free of charge, with the exception of transportation and room and boarding. Medical examinations consisted of palpitating patients and pinching them and looking at them. The facility did not contain any microscopes, and using the same injection he claimed could cure cancer, he would also guarantee cures for ailments such as hemorrhoids and varicose veins all a farce. The first federal charge against Baker occurred in 1937. It failed because the appellate court did not accept the prosecution's argument that transport and recordings abroad to broadcast to the United States was a breach of the Brinkley Act, which is included in the Communications Act of 1934, prohibiting broadcasting studios in the United States from being connected by live telephone line or other means to a transmitter located in Mexico. In 1938, another lawsuit would present itself when Baker sued RKO Radio Pictures Inc. for $1.1 million after the March of Time newsreel portrayed him as a quack doctor. Baker's Hospital in Eureka Springs had revamped the town's economy, so the state closing down the hospital given Baker's outstanding litigation issues was out of the question. So the federal government brought charges against Norman Baker himself with seven counts of mail fraud in September of 1939. However, the case was complicated given the fact that Norman Baker did not possess any formal posts in the business, only proxies. He made an appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but was denied and sentenced to four years of jail and $4,000 in restitution. The following year, just a few months later, that January of 1940, the court found Baker's cure to cancer to be ruled officially a pure hoax and utterly false and jailed him a pending appeals. Baker served the sentence at the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas from May of 1941 to 1944. Baker and his associate R.A. Bellows both served their time at Leavenworth and Bellows decided to sue his fellow inmate for a breach of contract stating that Baker had not paid him the $75,000 of profits of which he was entitled. Bellows, described by the court as an ignorant country barber until Baker hired him, died shortly after suing Baker while still incarcerated. During Norman's imprisonment, his radio station in Mexico, Zent, went silent and the Crescent Hotel turned hospital closed. The flesh and tumors Baker removed from patients and stored in glass bottles to add to his guise of being a medical professional were all removed from the building. It would not be until almost 80 years later in 2019 when hundreds of these same glass bottles would be found buried in the woods near the Crescent Hotel. Some broken, some filled with alcohol, some still with bits of unidentified tissue floating around inside of them. This called for the authorities to tape the area off like a crime scene in a cooperative effort with archaeologists to launch an excavation of the site. To this day, testing is still ongoing. And to this day, the Crescent Hotel is still regarded as being haunted by those who lost their lives to Norman G. Baker's buffoonery. The hotel would then be purchased in 1946 for $62.50 and renovated by a group of four men and returned to a resort destination with six-day all-inclusive tours from Chicago. In the oncoming decades, however, the Crescent Hotel would change several hands. Thelma Yount, appointed head of Zent in Baker's absence, sold its equipment to the Alamo Broadcasting Company of Texas, of which was then owned by Elliot Roosevelt, the son of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and his second wife, Ruth Josephine. However, the United States could not obtain the gear due to the wartime freeze on such an option. In 1944, Alamo tried again and secured highly unusual permission from the FCC to upgrade its KABC station, now KKYX in San Antonio, from 250 
to 50,000 watts or 10,000 watts per night using Zen's relocated transmitters and mass. This vastly increased the value of the Alamo and Ruth Roosevelt's Texas State Network. Anti-Roosevelt author Emanuel M. Josephine in 1948 wrote in the screen's death of Franklin D. Roosevelt, History of Roosevelt Delano Dynasty, America's Royal Family, the following. In 1938, with the support of Charles F. Rosa and said W. Richardson, Texas oil operators, who invested $500,000, Eli, set up a chain of 23 radio stations in Texas, just provide him, according to the Washington Tim Harold of August 29, 1945, with an income of $76,000 more a year that his father earned as President of the United States, the enterprise is reported to have lost $100,000 in the first three months. The Transcontinental Broadcasting Company was liquidated in 1941, According to a publication dating back to November 1st of 1939, entitled Elliot Roosevelt with Seven Other Bills, Radio Chain Transcontinental Broadcasting Company to Compete with Three Now and Operation, it reads as follows. Elliot Roosevelt, son of the president and head of the Texas radio network, announced today the formation of a new coast-to-coast -coast chain of radio broadcasting stations. Roosevelt said the new chain would operate in competition with the Columbia Broadcasting System, the National Broadcasting Company, and the Mutual Network. He said the chain was incorporated as the Transcontinental Broadcasting Company at Wilmington, Delaware, with seven stockholder directors who were holding their first meeting in Chicago today to elect officers. Roosevelt said the stockholders were himself H.J. Brennan, Pittsburgh, John Roberts, and Clarence Crosby, both of St. Louis, Jack Stewart, and Thomas Evans, both of Kansas City and Lester E. Cox of Springfield, Missouri. He said all the stockholders except himself were directors of the new corporation that he was represented on the board by John T. Adams, with whom he is associated in the Texas Network, 100 stations we expect to begin operations within about 45 days. With each chain of 100 stations from coast to coast and from the northern and southern boundaries of the United States, Roosevelt said the Texas Network is a part of the new chain, but I do not want to get the impression that I am the organizer of the chain. I am, as operator of radio stations, only a 100th part of it. Roosevelt said the chain would include a few stations of $50,000 W power, but the majority of them would be in the $5,000 W group, the second largest classification issued by the Federal Communications Commission. The FCC. The thing was, Mexico had an export ban on radio gear, but it could be overridden in certain circumstances, which turned out to include the Alamo's payment of $35,000 to the Mexican Minister of Communications. On October 31st of 1944, Alamo bought Zent for $100,000. However, in February, Norman Baker intervened with the President of Mexico, Manuel Avila Camacho, and was able to partially stop the transaction. In March of 1945, Zent was trucked to San Antonio except for the generators and masks. Despite Baker's injunction, he said, As the result of well-known tricks, artifices, and devices common to the Mexican border, said trucks did move across the bridge approximately 30 minutes before the papers arrived. Baker filed a complaint against Alamo with the FCC in late 1945. Baker asserted that the Roosevelt's had engineered the transaction behind his back and had, through direct access to President Roosevelt, secured the FCC's permit, therefore. Baker and Thelma Ewens had it fallen out, each accusing the other of fraud. The case received some attention due to the newspaper columns of Westbrook Pegler, a fierce enemy of the Roosevelt's. Pegler asserted that the FCC had been influenced to make Ruth Roosevelt wealthy at Baker's expense. The FCC denied Baker's claim in April of 1947. The FCC asserted that Baker had initially approved the transaction, having been told that Alamo could secure a federal pardon for him, which Baker later discovered not to be forthcoming. The games were not over for Norman Baker, however. At 64 years old in 1946, Baker re-attempted to return to curing and healing people by establishing a research facility in Muscatine, Iowa. However, this was quickly shut down by the state of Iowa out of concern for the public interest. He had quite the lifelong reputation by this point and Iowa was not going for it. Not again. Ultimately, Norman would retire to Miami, Florida with his ill-gotten fortunes, where he would live aboard a large yacht once owned by the railroad developer Jay Gold. 
Norman would go on to die in Miami of psoriasis on September 10th of 1958 at 75 years old. In the annals of American history, Norman Baker emerges not just as an unlicensed radio doctor, but as a notorious figure, etched in infamy by the medical profession. Much like his counterparts, such as Harry Hoxie, Baker garnered a loyal following who bought into his tales of conspiracies within mainstream medicine, aiming to suppress his proclaimed cure, with a bold claim that, if given a chance, he would reap $1 million out of the suckers in the state through his radio station. Baker's notoriety soared. His radio escapades married the infamous Goat Gland Station of John R. Brinkley's KFKB in Kansas. Brinkley, like Hoxie, sought refuge in Mexico to escape legal entanglement. While charlatans have a historical foothold, the Baker saga remains captivating as an early instance of exploiting new mass communications technologies with minimal regulation. The clash between Baker and the FCC became a harbinger of the intricate dance between censorship and regulation, delving into the early controversies of international radio spectrum allocations. The oversight of U.S. regulatory bodies over medicine, in contrast to the hands-off approach to religion, led scholars to posit that the decline of the radio doctor phenomenon paved the way for the rise of religious broadcasting. Furthermore, Baker's broadcasts offer a glimpse into the precursor of modern shock jock radio, marking a fascinating chapter in the intersection of medicine, regulation, and the evolving landscape of broadcast media. As for the Crescent Hotel, its most famous hauntings include that of Room 218 where Michael, an Irish stonemason, fell to his death upon seeing a beautiful woman while building the hotel. Then there's Theodora, a cancer patient who is known to be seen fumbling for her keys outside of room 419 as well as tidying up for guests when they leave the room. Brecky, a four-year-old child of Richard and Mary Breckenridge Thompson who died in the hotel due to complications from appendicitis who has been seen throughout the hotel often bouncing a ball. Then there's Dr. John Fremont Ellis, the hotel's in-house doctor circa the late 19th century, who was most often seen or smelled via his cherry pipe tobacco near his office which is now room 212 and then there's morris the famed hotel cat who was known as the hotel general manager for 21 years and later buried on the hotel property who was regularly seen and heard this is not america's most haunted hotel just because of all the tragedy that occurred in its formative years and distant past but rather the activity that still occurs to this day in fact Every year, hordes of paranormal investigators travel to observe the property and link up to share their findings annually in January. There is a spot on the third floor of the Crescent where it connects to an add-on built onto the hotel back when it was a hospital. Multiple guests have actually fainted at this specific spot nightly on its ghost tours without reason. Such occurrences happen over a period of several weeks or months and then there will be none for a time. Guests will suddenly pale, falling against and sliding down the wall. Although these losses in consciousness are brief with immediate recoveries, it does give way to the belief that the annexed area is a portal of sorts to the other side. All thanks to Norman G. Baker. This concludes this tape.